Welcome to Real Talk JavaScript, the weekly talk show with advice and insight into the technologies and practices currently being used to build web applications in the real world. Each week, Ward Bell, Dan Wallen, and John Papa talk to industry experts about their experiences writing, deploying, and maintaining web applications in HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. And now, here are your hosts. Welcome back to Real Talk JavaScript. This is episode 52, Web Performance with Katie Hempenius. How are you doing, Katie? I'm good. Thanks for having me today. Yeah, thanks for ha- coming on today. And Ward, you're my co-host today. How's it going? How's it going? Well, I have been holding down the fort, and I'm very excited today. I'm very excited. Why are you excited? Because <laughs> my wife is coming home. She's been off in uh, the North Carolina painting. She's an oil painter. And uh, she's coming home, so uh, the dog and I are going to be happy to see her. She is quite the painter, too. I've seen some of those. Yeah, she's doing great. And it's wonderful to see somebody in the grip of a passion. That, and the passion she has for oil painting is amazing. Um, how about you, John? What's cooking? Oh, a lot's been going on lately. School's just begun. And uh, just today, actually, we, uh, Niall and I, remember Niall from AG Grid we had on the show last week? I certainly do. That was a good, good episode. Yeah, Niall and I were talking and we have uh, agreed that AG Grid is going to support our show for many weeks to come. So I'm excited about that. Well, that's good, and it's great to have a sponsor we believe in. I mean, not that we don't believe in our other sponsors. <laughs> we only put sponsors on. That, we that, that's yeah, that's absolutely true. Uh, <laughs> I didn't mean except it that, that way. Idea Blade company. Yeah, that we have yeah. Sponsors, except you know? for my company, we're not so sure about that. <laughs> no, it's going to be great. It's actually um, it's actually exciting for me because I've used a lot of data grids over the years, as I'm sure you have too. And AJ Grid is uh, it's one of the ones that checks a lot of the boxes for me. So I'm excited that we can marry. You know, the podcast sponsorship with a product that we actually uh, enjoy using. So this is going to be good. I'm excited about it. And Katie, we have you on today. And for those out there who are not familiar with Katie, Katie is an engineer on the Chrome team where she works on making the web faster. Previously, she was a software engineer on Google Ag Manager, that small little company, right? And a senior software engineer at Fitbit. Wow. Sounds like a pretty cool uh, career path you've taken. Yeah, it's been neat. I've been able to work on a lot of cool things. Yeah, I mean, Google Ads, I I don't know how much it makes, but uh, you hear about it all the time. I'm into finance, and I watch the news, and it seems like Google Ads are like the main moneymaker out of Google. So uh, I imagine that must have been both fun and harrowing at times to work on projects like that. Yes, I mean, I guess it's always good to be in the the revenue-generating center. Uh, You know, you're you're keeping the lights on. That's true. Uh, I think we've all throughout our careers, at least many of us, have worked on different projects that were maybe not the moneymaker at times. <laughs> and sometimes uh, that's not a fun place to be, but you know everybody's got to put their place in at certain areas of the company. It is definitely nice to work like that. So Fitbit, that's, that's not part of Google, is it? No, I worked for Fitbit out in San Francisco. I worked on a product, to be honest, I'm not sure if it's still around, but uh, it's called <laughs> Fitbit Coach. Um, and the idea was that you would use basically machine learning to customize and create uh, workouts for you that would grow with you as you work out and provide feedback. That actually sounds super cool. How did you get into, I mean, were you always interested in that kind of AI stuff? No, I mean, I think it's really cool. But to be honest, uh, I was like, Fitbit looks like a cool place to work. Let me look at their openings. And that just happened to be an opening. So I kind of 
stumbled on it by luck rather than it being a part of a great big plan of mine. That's so. Uh, that is so how it happened. Certainly how it happened for me. Um, you're 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 described in all three places as an engineer. What does engineer? What does that mean? What do you do? What does a day in the life of Katie look like? Ooh, good question. Uh, I feel like that used to be an easier question for me to answer because you're like, you know, I come into work, I throw my headphones and I just, I write code. Now with the work that I do around web performance, I find web performance is a lot more open-ended. So while I still do that, uh, there's a lot more, you know, maybe going off and investigating things or measuring things or or meeting with people. It's a much more open-ended. You know, that's, it's really, I'm I'm sorry, I'm still stuck on Fitbit. I do a lot of uh, exercise type things and I'm always looking at, I have a Garmin right now, watch, that I've been using. And I'm always fascinated by the technology that they have where you can, you know, track your workouts and it actually seems to be getting better at figuring out what I'm doing as opposed to me telling it what I'm doing, like what kind of a workout I'm doing. That's, that's interesting because I, I have this conversation with a lot of people because you know, here I, I worked at Fitbit, and particularly when I was working at Fitbit, and everyone's like, well, it's not perfect. Why isn't it perfect? <laughs> uh, so it's actually refreshing for once to, to hear positive feedback about that because I know sometimes there are people like, well, I was lying on my couch and I didn't move for an hour and I thought I was sleeping. It's like, well, you know, <laughs> it's hard oh, to write yeah. these algorithms to be perfect. So that's an interesting viewpoint. Yeah, speaking of imperfection, while I was floating down the Colorado and the bo- boat was bouncing up and down, I was getting a lot of credit for steps. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it was like I moved from tot- like cadaver status to inactive. It was really a positive thing for me, and I didn't have to do a thing. You know, that's interesting because uh, my daughter, uh, Ella, one of my daughters, she got really interested in uh, Fitbits recently, and she got an actual Fitbit. Uh, and we do the steps thing together. It's part of her gym class, effectively. She has to track like how much she's walking and moving and doing things. And we went to Disney World for a day because I live five minutes away. And we went walking around. I got in 22,000 steps. I was like, I walked with her all day. <laughs> she got in 26,000 steps. And then we realized, oh, her legs are shorter. Okay, so maybe maybe somehow it's actually tracking that too. Um, so I think for that feature in particular, it doesn't track. Well, actually, maybe it does track that. But I know also in the profile, it will ask you for information about your height or your weight. So to be honest, I think the algorithm is super top secret. I don't know how it works. But it could either be using that data, my guess, is to, to figure out the number of steps. Or it might just detect that you truly are just taking more steps. See, that that's what a true engineer is right there, Ward, right? We're sitting here talking about the coolness of these uh, you know, exercise trackers, and all we can think about is how they're actually working under the covers. So I think we just defined engineer right there. <laughs> so Katie, you now work for the Chrome team doing web performance. What, is, what does that job entail? Uh, so our team basically looks at you know, how can we make the web faster? And so when we say web, it's different than the internet. So it's not making your internet connection faster. It's looking at how we can uh, build websites differently to make them faster. Um, and that's a mixture of uh, coming up with tooling to support that, um, looking into new technologies that can help that, uh, yeah, things along those lines. Yes, some of it seems to be, well, I don't know. I mean, I was looking at an article of yours about a feature of Chrome, which I'm hoping you'll tell us about. Um, um, but in that case, it's it seemed like, well, uh, I think it, it, the one I'm talking about is the no state prefetch. Yes. Um, which I'm curious if you worked on that yourself. 
Um, um, so that I don't have to, you know, I just consume that if I'm using uh, Chrome, I don't actually have to make a change to my website, right? Yes. And in some ways those, because there are some features where maybe if you can implement something in Chrome or ideally across all browsers, that makes developers' lives easier because nobody has to opt into it. It's, it's kind of like a performance boost that you get for free. Um, and examples of features like that might be like supporting new compression algorithms because they just kind of go into effect. You don't have to do anything. The Those are down- my favorite, favorite features. How about you, Jim? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's right up there with regex for me. <laughs> <laughs> No, anything I don't have, anything you can do just under the covers for me, that's... So, for instance, uh, something new that shipped along those lines is Chrome just automatically switching to lazy loading of images, though we only automatically do lazy loading of images under, like, particular circumstances, because a lot of sites don't want you messing with how they go about lazy loading images. But say, for instance, someone has data saver on, they're on a poor connection, Chrome will make the decision to go ahead and do that. But there's a line to walk there. On one hand, implementing those types of features is really convenient. But on the other hand, developers like to have control over their sites. And for good reason. You want to control how your site is experienced. So that that approach works for some things, but not for others. So if I if I'm, you know, if let's suppose you do something, I say, no, you just you just messed with me. Um you usually give me something I can go into my um tag or something like that to disable it? Is that typically your approach? It would depend on the feature. Um, so I'm trying to think of an example. Uh, so, so to use the lazy loading example, there's an API, like there's an image, there's an attribute you would add to the image tag and you can deliberately turn off that feature right. regardless That's of whether someone has, has opted into it. Right. So usually if you're designing a good feature, good API, you're giving you'd give the developer some way to turn that off even if you so have, you know, intelligent defaults but give people uh, an exit. I think that's good. I mean, intelligent defaults are are really important with this stuff because I mean, there's so many new features being added to the browsers that most of us can't keep up with it. Uh, it's not just browsers, it's these the frameworks and all the technologies. Everything, yeah. Yeah, it's like one less thing I got to think about. Just do the right thing for me, and if I want to turn it off, I'll investigate to figure out how, you know? Exactly. And on that note, we have to pay the bills, Ward, so let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. Hey, Ward, guess what time it is? I don't know, John. What time is it? It's time to talk about data and web apps and AG Grid. AG Grid. I've got a story for you. Do tell. Well, it's uh, about my own consulting company, IdeaBlade, where we build web apps for enterprise clients, and they tend to have lots of data grids and lots of complex data grids. Last year, one of our clients said, we want you to use AG Grid. So we said, okay, let's give it a try. And it turned out great. So you must have had a lot of requirements and features. How did you go through that process? Well, John, these enterprise apps are are very data intensive and they want lots of features. We needed all the bells and whistles, uh, column filtering, column sorting, moving the columns around, uh, custom components inside the data cells, and even grids within grids. And it just worked fine with AG Grid. Just great, actually. 
Okay, but the ultimate uh, Terminator is going to be performance. How fast was this with a lot of rows? We, you know, had initial worries about that too, but it scrolls so smoothly through that data even when you're getting it remotely. It was fantastic. Would you do this again? Would you recommend it? Well, we certainly would. In fact, uh, my business partner, who was the lead uh, on the team that built this project, he tells me now, despite the fact that he'd been using another grid all this time, uh, if somebody asks me today to recommend a data grid, I recommend AG Grid. And coming from him, a uh, real curmudgeon, that is high praise indeed. So everybody out there, do check out AG Grid at their website, ag-grid.com. And we're back. Uh, here we are with Katie Hempenius. And I was actually watching your talk. I think it's the Smashing Conf London one. Ooh, the, the early one, yes. Yes. Um, it was about a year or so ago. I see you've got this talk a couple times uh, up on the web. And I was specifically cluing into the code splitting and lazy loading uh, section that you had out there. And I'm curious, you know, could you just kind of give our listeners your, your you know, your spiel about why this is important and what they should be doing? Yes. So sort of the default when it comes to how most uh, websites are served is you just give the users all the code for your entire app up front. And the downside to that is you're probably including a lot of code that the user doesn't need right away. So for example, maybe they only need the code to render the home page, but you're serving them the code to render a bunch of other pages. So code splitting, by splitting the your app into smaller portions, you can just deliver what the user needs right away, and that's going to inc- uh, improve the performance on that initial page load. And then in the background, while the user's looking at that first page, you can be loading all those other parts of the site so that they're ready for when the user's going to go there. So and actually what I just described, the Or a twist on that would be lazy loading, which is uh, just uh, loading things as they are needed rather than all all up front. So, Ward, you have a lot of experience with code splitting and lazy loading. And we've had many conversations um, on the side and some on the show about how do you – sometimes you can go too far on one side of having not enough bundles. Maybe it's one big file, as Katie said. Uh, Or you can go on the other side of, you know, there's 50,000 bundles. Hopefully nobody has that. But where – where would you feel, Katie, that, you know, how do you know when you've got the right split somewhere in your application? It's going to vary from site to site depending on how it's architected, but you generally don't want to go too small. So if you're having, you know, bundles that are just like a couple kilobytes, um, that's actually going to be bad perform- for performance because those uh, bundles are not going to compress as well. Uh, but then in addition, I know Chrome does this, and I believe the other browsers do this too. Um, they've started with the bigger bundles, you can start uh, streaming the, the code in the background. And so that uh, feature only uh, goes into effect, I think, once a file is at least 30 kilobytes. So I would say the sweet spot is maybe 50 to 100 kilobytes. However, that doesn't mean to say you should have maybe, I mean, if you need to, but having uh, 10 100 uh, kilobyte chunks, then you need to stop back, step back and ask yourself, do you really need that much JavaScript to serve your app? But uh, so, yeah, I would say the sweet spot is maybe between 40 and 100 kilobytes. That's interesting. I, I, I was hoping for a specific answer. And wow, that was really specific. Uh, it, I always find that's difficult for me to figure out because 
you read all this great stuff on the web and people are like, yeah, I don't have too many or don't have too few. Well, well great. But you know, everybody has a, uh, an app that they can relate to in their heads that they've built. And doesn't it really have to do with um, like your network characteristics? For example, if I'm, you know, it doesn't make any difference at all if I've got a really swift uh, connection, but if I'm on a phone with what, what, you know, and there are different ways in which I can, can be connected, wouldn't the profile I want vary based on the kind of connection I have, or am I just dreaming that? It depends. Uh, network connection obviously is very important and plays a large role, but in general, we actually find that CPU is the bigger constraint. And so with the larger JavaScript files, what happens is that, you know, because they're so large, they end up, you know, it takes the CPU a while to process them. And while that's happening, the CPU can't respond to other events. So, for instance, like a user taps on the site or tries to do something, the CPU is busy handling that file, so it can't respond. So that's why keeping the files smaller is better because... It basically ensures that, say, for instance, after like 50 milliseconds, the the main thread will become uh, active again or will be done with the, the JavaScript parsing that I was doing, and it can respond to the user. You know, that's that's really interesting. So so not all bytes coming over the wire are the same. And Im- about, uh, uh, some bytes of images and some bytes of JavaScript are not the same. Is that what you're saying? Yes, Um uh, like per byte, JavaScript is definitely the most expensive because if you think of what has to be done, it has to be parsed, it has to be compiled, then you're actually executing the com- code. Compare that to images, there is a little bit of computation required by the, the CPU to display an image. For instance, it might have to um, you know, resize the image, and obviously it actually has to literally draw the pixels on the screen, but comparatively to JavaScript, that is a very, very little um, computation required. And where do tools like Lighthouse and some of these others come into play here? Uh, do they are they helpful? Uh, how helpful are they? So the idea with Lighthouse is to give you basically just a tool that you can run that will give you feedback on things you might want to fix on your website. And it's interesting because I, can, in particular, can get like really into the nitty gritty of maybe some of these more cutting edge techniques. But a lot of times, what I find when I run Lighthouse on different sites is a lot of the stuff that it finds is not particularly cutting edge. So, for example, I think I saw statistics. I think forty percent of resources on the web on the, around that magnitude are not being served with compression, and that's like a that's a really easy win. And you know, GZIP compression has been around forever. And, yeah. you know, within the past couple of years, we now have broadly to add to that. So it's not something that's super cutting edge. You know, it's not as cutting edge as maybe even splitting your, your JavaScript up. But Lighthouse is very good for finding little things like that. Uh, so that's a good, easy first step if you're wondering how to improve the performance of your site and want some pointers as to what are some of the issues on your site and how you can fix them. Yeah, and there's um, there's a lot of good tools out there. Like I, I write Node quite a bit, and with Node, it's just one line of code with middleware that you can compress when using Express. I imagine it's pretty fast and easy to do that with uh, other server technologies too. Ward, what are you what are you using? I hold my I'm terrible. I hold my finger to the wind. <laughs> 
I mean, are you using I, I, .NET as a server or using Node or what's what's your server technology? Oh, oh okay, yeah. We're, um, well, you know, it depends on on the client. Um, I would say the majority of our clients are using something like uh, .NET Core, um, uh, rather than than um, Node. We, you know, for some reason, uh, Node. Um, yeah, I mean, you you use it a lot. A lot of people use it, but for some reason, our clients are not there yet. Gotcha. Yeah, I was just going to look up because I haven't used compression with .NET Core, but I'm sure there is. Yep, and there we go. There's a talk on how to do that. And I'll put that in the show notes for folks. Katie, one of the things that's still hanging in my head is there was this debate a long time ago about script order and putting in a, you know, whether it should be above the body tag and all that other stuff. And I had, I had the sense that as browsers evolved, that that was... Le- either no longer a consideration or less of a consideration. But is that something our listeners should be worried about at all? And if so, how? I think it is still a consideration, but it gets overshadowed because, you know, 10 years ago, that was the only thing you need to worry about was the ordering. And now there's so much other techniques out there that that's just like a tiny, you know, drop in the ocean when it comes to looking at how your resources are ordered. So I feel like these days we tend to talk more about like resource hints, you know, whether you should be preloading or prefetching things. Uh, yeah. So, so what are the, what are the terrible things that most of us do? <laughs> uh, We're going to have an intervention here with Ford today. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause you know, I, I'm, I'm, take me to school, man. I'm sure. Uh, you know, I'm I'm sure I'm, I'm obli- there are things that we routinely do that we're oblivious to, like like loading six versions of jQuery. All right, let's take that one off the table because we see that all the time. But yes, you know, I do. <laughs> but let's imagine all of our <laughs> listeners know not to do that. So, but what are the things that you see that you think people re- really should be aware of that they're just not paying attention to these days? Yeah, so the first one that came to mind when you said that is, you know, we can take a step back and abstract that away from jQuery, but in general, a lot of times we just keep adding to our our vendor files but never go back and clean them out. And that can be a very, you know, something you take a couple hours to do and can really trim down the size of your site. Uh, Another really straightforward thing is I'm always struck by the fact we review code, but at least in my experience, no one reviews the images. No one's like, hey, this is the right size. And, you know, a lot of times you'll be getting the images from designers and they're super high res. I mean, you could wallpaper a room with these images, but you just, you don't think about it. You just upload it, but you're maybe displaying that image at like 200 pixels. Uh, So that's like, and then that's why when we look at these statistics, some sites just have a ridiculous amount of images on them, but it makes sense. It's easy for that to happen. Um, that's another really easy one. As I mentioned, just turning on compression, that's that's very simple. You know, I've got a story about uh, image size at my first week at one of my previous jobs. I went in to help diagnose some performance issues. And one of the first things I noticed was that there was an error on a page. And it was way too easy to get this error to happen. So we were discussing that. Like, why are we sending the users down this path of if they don't fail to form perfectly, we're basically making them go to an error page. Uh, And then on that error page, we had a conversation for literally three minutes before, like the page is loading, before the whole error page loaded. And then I stopped and I said, wait a minute. Yeah, are you telling me the whole time we're having this conversation, the error image was loading? So not only did we send them to an error page, but then we have to kick them again, kick the users again by loading this image. We went and looked at it. It was five and a half meg. 
Oh my oh, gosh. I, I, I totally believe it. Yeah. <laughs> really? Like, did somebody really not think of reducing this? And then I asked and somebody in the room said, well, yeah, well, we tried to, but we had an error when we tried to run that through the middleware. <laughs> I was just like, whoo, and this was 10 years ago. So uh, things like this have been fixed since then, but uh, I'm willing to bet that not everybody is running image reduction middleware or, you know, webpack bundlers or loaders to help with that kind of stuff. Oh, no. Uh, I mean, I've looked at the the numbers and it really doesn't look like it. Because with images, like you think like, oh, it's just an image. But there's actually a lot of different variables that go into what you know, results in what you see, you know, you know, are you compressing your images? What about the size? Even what format you, you save it as can really change the file size drastically. So there's yeah. a lot of little things that are easy to overlook there. And there are sites, like some sites I've worked on literally have like two big images and that's it. So you're like, ah, I don't want to hook this into the CI process. So I've actually sent people to just the, these single one-off websites to reduce image size. Oh, yeah, you know, like tiny like PNG, it. tiny JPEG, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are manual ways to do this that, you know, sometimes automating something you're going to do once is like, why automate it? Yeah, totally agree. Boy, it does sound like maybe, you know, I, what I should do is I should go to my site, open the network tab, crank it, and then sort by descending so, uh, size and see what's in there. Is that kind of like, uh, uh, is that like the, this, the, Stupid, simple way to get started, or, or what would you do? Oh, yeah. Uh, cause, I mean, you don't need to download any tools. It's already, you know, you probably already have that open in front of you. Just reload the page and see what the resources size, resource sizes are, not just for images, but everything on the page. You know, how big is the JavaScript? Uh, this isn't standard, but sometimes I'll come across sites and the CSS is just ridiculously huge oh, yeah. to the point that I'm like, I, what, what are you doing? <laughs> how does that happen, by the way? I keep hearing, I keep running into things and I hear about people having enormous CSS and like, how do they, how do you even get enormous CSS? What, what causes that? Uh, so actually what I think what's going on is people are just importing things and aren't really thinking and maybe like you wanted Actually, I, I can think of an example of this at uh, a particular company, but maybe you just wanted like a single style declaration, but you imported it from a library. Now, all of a sudden, you're importing all those styles when you literally need like a one or two lines of CSS. And you can see over the years that happens multiple times, and all of a sudden, you're pulling in all this CSS for maybe not much styling. Um, is, is there anything like Dead CSS elimination is there is in dead code elimination, or is that just a frontier science? Kind of, uh, not, not the tooling isn't quite equivalent to I think what we're used to for JavaScript, yeah. but um, in Chrome, and it might be hidden as a experimental feature, but I know it's in there. Chrome will go through and can tell you what percentage of the CSS on a page is unused. Really. Yes. I did not know that. That's awesome. Yes. Um, and I'm trying to think. You might be able to get to that information through Lighthouse, too. But again, it, it might be hidden in Lighthouse. I know how to get to it because I, I write code for Lighthouse. But I know you can definitely get to that through tools. And now the one wrinkle there is a lot of times people have one CSS file for their entire site. So you'll be able to tell what's used on that particular page. But you'll need to do some more thinking to figure out whether that the unused CSS is used elsewhere in your app. But uh, another thing to look into if you're looking to drop the size of your CSS is that there are tools that can identify um, what CSS is used above the fold. 
So a good practice when loading CSS is to separate the CSS that's required to render content above the fold. So when I say above the fold, that's uh, content that the user will see immediately when they like open the page because it falls within the viewport. The stuff that you can only get to with scrolling would be considered below the fold. Anyway, these tools, and there's a couple of them. Uh, Addy has one. They all have similar names. I think one's called Critical, one's called Critical CSS, and then there's, I think, Penthouse um, from Filament. And all of them will be able to identify what CSS is above the fold. So you separate and load separately the CSS that's above the fold and the CSS that's below the fold. And then to see it, then then the order in which you mention those CSS files must matter. We're back to that ordering thing. Uh, yes, and actually, then the cool trick is if you're splitting them up, you can uh, load the CSS that's needed for below the fold. You can load that asynchronously. Yeah, I just put links to uh, those tools and a couple of articles actually showing how to use those. The critical tool that Addy Asmani put together, it looks like I just found an article on CSS Tricks from 2014 about this. Yes, so, uh, it's, it's been, been around for a while, while but yeah. I feel like people don't maybe talk about it as much as they should. And because the other cool thing is because these are all the tools I just mentioned, they're all NPM modules, you can I set them up basically to act as APIs to generate. Uh, you know, so you, you can run them manually, but say you want to uh, develop a, a above the fold CSS for all your different pages and you want don't want to do that manually, you can set up these tools to just run and generate the code so you can basically do it all programmatically. Yeah, because I know uh, eons ago when I was going through this with some large sites, I I really shouldn't uh, reveal too much here because I'm showing you how, what terrible apps I've written sometimes, but there was a site I worked on where uh, this conversation went on. Uh, so we have four CSS files named CSS 1, 2, 3, and 4. Why is that? They're like, oh, that's because of the file size limitation. Like, which one? They're like, well, the browser can only support a four meg CSS file. This is <laughs> oh, one wow. of the IE versions years ago. I'm like, why do we have more than 12 meg of CSS on this site? Uh, and then we started going down the, the road. I, I don't remember if it was UnCSS or one of Addy's tools uh, way back then. We were trying to use that to find the dead CSS. But the problem we ran into is uh, a lot of this app was using CSS as selectors inside the code, mm-hmm. uh, and that wasn't picking it up, at least at the time. Uh, so we couldn't really rely on all of that because uh, there was like Selenium and stuff that was running against that for end-to-end testing. You know, that's what makes me nervous about people littering, uh, you know, creating programmatic classes and dropping them all over the place. Yeah. Because um, uh, that, it makes it really hard to, or it seems currently, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong about that, but it feels like that makes it hard to, fi- to find out what, what you're actually using and what's a real style and what isn't. And uh, I find it confusing, um, which is why I pretty much ignore it. Like most people, uh, <laughs> you know, you know, uh, and that's really what happens. I, I think that's how this happens, John. We, we're also driven to deliver the functionality on a, on a deadline. And, and uh, at first it's the, you know, it's like, ah, that won't matter. That won't matter. But those, the, those things that don't matter pile up. And, until it bites you sometime. And I guess that's what you're seeing, Katie. Yeah, and, and looking at CSS in particular, I can see why people are very nervous to, to remove anything because you, you don't really have code coverage for CSS. Um, um, yeah. it, it, it's not a thing. And so at least when you, like, say, rip out a library that's JavaScript, you're fair, you know, if your tests fit pass and this assumes that you have decent tests, you can be fairly confident that you know, things are going to be okay and it's not going to break. But a lot of times when you start, 
messing with CSS, it's like, oh, you know, something's going to look really bad, but I don't know what it is, and I don't want to click through the entire site to find out. Well, what about tools like uh, Screenster and some of the other ones that are out there where they can actually run through CI and they can like take, I assume they're taking snapshots yes, of the web pages. I, I forgot about that. Um, I, I'm not sure how many people use them. I know I've used them previously at Google, um, and that's a good way to detect whether there's any uh, regressions in the UI. I've only used it uh, twice in my life, and it was on one of those uh, publicly facing sites, uh, actually years ago when I worked at a very public company. And uh, they had, like marketing had to have it pixel perfect. And speaking of perfection, Ward, this is a perfect time for our second ad spot for a word from our sponsors. Are you building a web application? Need to deliver it soon and don't have the people to do it? Maybe you're not sure your company has the skill set or experience to do it. And maybe we can help. I'm your host, Ward Bell, and my day job is building applications for companies like yours. I don't do it alone. I'm president of IdeaBlade, a consultancy that specializes in enterprise web application development. We're particularly strong in Angular, RxJS, NGRx Redux on the front end, and .NET Microsoft technologies on the server. We're a small, tight-knit group of people handpicked by me for their expertise, experience, integrity, and team spirit. Maybe we can help you with architectural guidance and hands-on development. And if there's something we don't know, and in our field, really, there's too much to know, we can draw on our personal connections in the Microsoft RD, MVP, and Google GDE networks, as well as our international circle of really great developers, people we know and trust personally. If you've got a project that's keeping you up at night, shoot us an email at info at ideablade.com. That's info at ideablade.com. And now back to the show. And we're back. And Katie, there's a couple questions that I had marked down here, and I hope you don't mind me asking from a couple of your talks that uh, I found personally really fascinating. One of them on one of your slides from the Smashing Conf, you talked about TTI and how Netflix reduced their TTI on the login page. Could you first explain what TTI is to folks and um, kind of talk about that concept and why people should care? Yeah, so time to interactive is one of the metrics you can use to measure the performance of a site. And time to interactive is measuring the time until the site is interactive to the user. So what that means is that the uh, main thread has been idle for at least 50 milliseconds, and that allows the and that what that means is that the main thread can respond to the user's input. So you might have experienced the phenomenon of, of like loading a page and it looks ready, but then you start trying to use it and it's just it's not doing anything, and you just keep yes. clicking and you're like, oh, why, why isn't this working? That's because it looks ready, but it's not actually interactive yet. And, and I think as developers, we see uh, we see like the little spinner sometimes up on the tab, but I don't know if like the average user looks for that, you know. Yeah, and what's going on there is even though the page may look ready, the browser in the background is still so busy, usually because it's so busy you know, parsing through all the JavaScript that's on the page that it just can't respond to you. So time to interactive measures the time that it takes to get to the point where the, the page is quote-unquote ready. You've mentioned several times how, how expensive it is to parse the JavaScript. Um, at one point, I, I, you know, we know, for example, that it 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 can at least cache the jo- source JavaScript, but that doesn't mean that it's parsed. Is there anything going on in sort of caching the pre-parsed JavaScript? Is there is that a frontier for browsers, or is that something that's actually happening? Yes, yeah, so browsers like will uh, 
so like you know you parse the JavaScript and then it's you know translated into the abstract syntax tree and that will uh, get cached by the browser. However, I'm trying to remember what the requirements are, and again, this varies from browser to browser. Um, uh, when it will be cached. So I don't think it will necessarily cache the results, you know, like of the, the JavaScript for every single page. I think it will depend on how much that page is used. And then the other thing we tend to see is, you know, people's JavaScript changes a lot. So sometimes it becomes less likely that that uh, JavaScript can be loaded from the cache. I mean, obviously, if it's a page that someone's on all the time, yes, you can likely uh, load that JavaScript from the cache. But maybe if it's a site that someone visits once a week, it might it's very likely that your JavaScript is changing uh, more quickly than your users visiting the site. Do things like Service Worker change the equation at all? They do. Uh, in the sense that service workers are going to give you a little bit more control over how your application is cached. Um, I'm trying to remember what we were talking about before this, so I can tie that back or complete that answer. But yeah, I guess the, the short answer is uh, service workers give you more control over how that happens. What about where latency comes into play? Like it, it always seems to me, this is one of those mysterious things I can never quite figure out when I'm building applications, especially ones that have to run on mobile web. And, uh, you know, I've got to count for 3G, 4G, hopefully 5G, uh, also Wi-Fi, and understanding not just the speed, but what the latency is on these things. Yeah. How, how do you evaluate that? So in general, when we're talking about networks and our impact on performance, the latency is having a bigger impact than the bandwidth. Um, and that's because of TCP slow start. So for people who are unfamiliar with that, TCP slow start is kind of how the connection is set up. And the server doesn't want to overload the client with more data that it can uh, pro you know, consume or accept. So when the connection is first established, it sends a little bit of data. And if the client success successfully accepts that, then the next time they'll send a bit more data back. And each time that the data goes back and forth, more data is sent. Uh, so in other words, it takes a while for the connection to warm up, quote unquote, to the like capacity that you see advertised. So if, if you're on mobile and you're supposed to get like five megs download, you're not getting that that rate, that download rate immediately. It's probably taking a couple seconds for the connection to warm up to that speed. So tying that back to your initial question, um, it's really interesting then if you take those latency numbers and basically plug them into TCP slow start, you'll start to see that the, the browser doesn't end up accepting a lot of data until like multiple seconds have elapsed. So if you're wanting to deliver a really fast page load experience with stuff showing up to the user within like the first one or two seconds on mobile, that means that you need to have, you know, contained like above the fold content in that first packet or two that's delivered to the user. Is that kind of like the idea? Well, not the entire idea, but it seems to make me think a lot of uh, progressive web apps when we start talking about this kind of stuff. Uh, when you get that initial page load, like the shell of the application. Uh Yes. So I don't necessarily, I guess, associate that UX with uh, progressive web apps or PWAs, but I mean, they're not necessarily exclusive. Uh, 
one of the sometimes what comes up with that is people starting to think about uh, how can we, if we know people are on a slow connection and there's not much that we can do about, what can we do from a design perspective to make that waiting less painful? And that's where, or not even less painful, but like get the users to stay on your site and not bounce and go somewhere else. Um, and that's where you start to see like maybe custom loading indicators or spinners or just trying to get like a skeleton screen on the, uh, on the screen, just something to indicate to the user like, hey, we're working on it. We're trying to load something. We know it's slow. Sure. You know, the, you, 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 you've got something in my head now that I had not realized that the speed with which I, the, the, the latency changes over the, over the first se- several seconds. Um, that puts a premium, even a higher premium on having a, a small uh, and quick loading um, site that give, gives the user confidence. Yeah, so it's not that the latency changes, it's that the, the effective bandwidth changes. Uh, what, um which I experienced the same. I do get those two things confused, but um, and maybe I shouldn't. Uh, maybe you're telling me I shouldn't. But um, um, uh, tell me as a as a uh, maybe you can help clarify that for <laughs> since I've already confused it um, from a user experience point of view. How do those two things play together? How, specifically, how talking latency versus uh, the bandwidth. Uh, yes, exactly. Yeah, so you can think of latency. So actually, we've mentioned this in my Spashing Comp presentation, but I had a slide up there. You think of latency, like say you have, you're turning on a hose and you're trying to go like water some flowers. Latency refers to how long that hose is because how long you have to wait for water your flowers is going to depend partially on how long that hose is. Um, and that's what latency is. It's, it's how long it takes data to travel from place A to place B. And uh, the reason that delay exists is that you know, at the end of the day, we're like literally information can only travel so fast. It's bounded by, you know, the speed of light. Bandwidth, on the other hand, if you is, would be like if I'm talking about that garden hose, would be a measure of how big that hose is, how much water it can carry. So like a little garden hose has a much lower bandwidth than a fire hose or a sewer, which <laughs> carries a lot more water at one time. So that's where... Like bandwidth is really important for something like movies because you're just trying to pull down a lot of data at once. But uh, bandwidth is going to have no impact on how quickly the data gets to you initially. And that makes sense because like thinking about Netflix or other movie services, uh, starting the movie in one second versus five seconds really doesn't bother me. It's once it's there just to keep the stream coming along. But um, you know, if I'm going to Amazon.com, for example, to purchase uh, something, a pair of socks, <laughs> you know, having to wait five seconds for every page to load, in that case, because there's uh, low latency but maybe really high bandwidth, uh, that would be kind of a poor user experience, I would imagine. Yeah, and if you think about it, you know, over the years, like home internet connections have gotten so much faster that when we say faster, we're referring to the bandwidth. And it's reflected in the fact that, you know, probably the video, the resolution of the video watch at home has really gotten so much better. It used to be, you know, 480p and, you know, now it may be HD. But if you, you know, contrast that with, as you were mentioning, like the Amazon shopping experience, does your Amazon shopping experience feel really any faster than it did 10 years ago? Probably not. And that has nothing to do with Amazon. It's just all of your everyday browsing probably actually hasn't gotten that much faster. Um, and that's because the improvements in your home internet are probably more around increasing the bandwidth rather than improving the latency. Yeah, and I had an example where 
you know, this is actually making me think a lot of interesting things that I've worked on. I had to go grab a bunch of photos off of a server and the server was very far away, um, like thousands of miles away. And the latency on the connection that we had between there was, I think it was 110 milliseconds is what we were getting. And the problem was we had so many images and they were requesting them one at a time, which is also a problem. We had so many images coming across that was really killing the experience on the one end. And I kept on hearing back that, well, we had this huge pipe between us and them. Uh, and it really wasn't the pipe. It was the fact that every time we, you know, we just ping the server, it was like 100 to 200 milliseconds. Uh, so I can see how, under, how looking at latency could be a problem. Exactly. And in that case, if they have, they have, a, have a big pipe, if they could do multiple images at one time, then you take it, get to take advantage of that. But if they're only doing them once at a time, that, that's no good. Um, and unfortunately, you know, the latency and the bandwidth, we don't have much control over. I mean, that's it's all based on infrastructure. That's very expensive to build. I mean, obviously, as a user, you can go out and switch internet providers, but uh, as, as software engineers, we can't change the latency or the network with our code. All we can do is change how our code uh, works with those network conditions. Katie, thanks a lot for coming on today. This has been a fascinating discussion. I'm sure we could go on for hours about this, but we have to wrap up. And as a wrap up, we'd like to leave a final tip or a final thought for our audience. Do you have one? Ooh, um, hmm. I guess since I talked about it today, check out Lighthouse um, and in particular, check out Lightwall, which is uh, which adds performance budgets to Lighthouse. Help you keep your performance in check. Very cool. And Ward, what's your final thought? Well, I, I'm uh, going to link to Jill Heinrich, who is a cave diver. And she, um, she just... Uh, published a book and I started reading it, her autobiography, and it scares the hell out of me. I don't know how she does it. Um, uh, and her mission is uh, clean water, and we're seeing that as a world, a global problem. And so, if you want uh, adventure and thrills and a purpose, I highly recommend um, you're finding out about her and maybe dipping into this book of hers. You know, I'm going to leave my final thought with two websites that I frequent quite a bit. One of them is CSS Tricks, which I'll put here in the notes, where we talked a lot about CSS today. And they have a lot of great, not just how to do CSS, but also tips on performance. Uh, but then also just the Google Docs have some really good web tips that are out there. So it's developers.google.com slash web. And I'll put that link in the show notes too. I find myself looking at that quite a bit, actually, when I'm looking for different uh, web performance tips. Hey, thanks for coming on again, Katie, and for sharing your stories with us. And Ward, thank you for joining us today. It's great to be with both of you. Wow, this is great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming. And thank you all for listening to another episode of Real Talk JavaScript. We'll see you every Tuesday morning. Thanks for listening to Real Talk JavaScript. This show and all of our shows are available at www.realtalkjs.com with links and notes. John and Ward would love to hear what you think, especially about potential guests and topics for future shows. Follow and send them a message on Twitter at RealtalkJS.